1648, the English Civil War came to the town of Colchester. Uh, at the time, Colchester was a walled town, and as part of its defenses, it had a large cam cannon mounted on its walls. The town was held by royalist forces, and it was attacked by the parliamentarians. The besieging army blew out the wall that was right under where the cannon was so that it fell, and despite the best efforts of the city's defenders, they could not get it back up on the wall to defend the city. Now, none of us would care about this rather obscure incident from history, except that according to the website for the tourist board for the town of Colchester, that cannon was nicknamed Humpty Dumpty. And when Humpty Dumpty had its great fall, all the king's soldiers, meaning all the royalist forces, could not put it back together again. Or as an older version of the rhyme says, fourscore men and fourscore more could not make Humpty Dumpty where he was before. Now, I mention that because for many of us who grew up with that nursery rhyme, it put in our heads an idea that once something is lost, it's irretrievable. Whether you think of Humpty Dumpty as an anthropomorphic egg or a cannon or whatever he is, once he falls, he's broken. And no matter the best efforts of the soldiers, they can't put him back together again. They can't put him back up where he was. Things will never be the same again. This idea gets in our heads and then it gets reinforced by experiences we have in life. Because it's true that some things, once they break, they're just broken. Some things, once they're lost, can't be recovered. We get this idea in our heads, and we can start to think about life in this way and just assume that once things are broken or lost, there's no fixing or repairing them. We can over-apply this principle. I've seen this happen in people's lives where something happens to them. Something happens to us. There's a tragedy. There's a loss. Someone hurts us. Someone abuses us. Trust is betrayed and the pain is profound and relationships in our life get broken and it doesn't seem like they can ever be fixed. Or worse, there's a breaking that happens in us and we think that we can never be fixed, that we can never be put back together again. Some of you know very well the kind of hurt and brokenness that I'm talking about. Because you've seen it happen to someone you really care about. You've seen it happen to a friend, a family member, a loved one. You see the effect that it's had on them. You see the brokenness in their life. For many of us, though, this isn't just something that we've seen happen to someone else. It's something that's happened to us. Maybe it happened a long time ago and the effects of it are still with you. Maybe it's in a more recent past. Maybe it's even a current reality but there has been a brokenness and relationships are shattered. Your life, your heart is shattered. What do we do with that kind of brokenness? That's what I want us to think about as we continue on today in our series called A Healthy Soul. This is part of the larger series we're in called Healthy Start as we think about going into this new year. But last, year, uh, last week, we talked about uh, how a healthy soul requires a secure identity. We have a secure identity in Christ, but if we don't live from that identity, our life is not going to have a very stable or secure foundation, and that dysfunction is going to show up in many ways, including in our relationships with other people. 
So it is absolutely essential if we're going to have a healthy soul that we have a secure identity, but it also really, really matters that we know what to do with the brokenness in our soul, that we know how to find healing and restoration. Remember, this really matters because our soul is the deepest part of us. It's the part that informs and underlies every other part of us. So when there's hurt, when there's brokenness in this deep part of us, it affects our whole life. But because that brokenness happens in such a deep place, it can be hard sometimes to know what to do with it. You know, when we get a physical illness or injury, we know how to treat it. Or at least we know we should go to the doctor. But what do we do when the pain, the brokenness is deep within us? What do we do when really important relationships have been broken and it looks like they can't be put back together? What do we do when our life is in pieces and it doesn't feel like they can ever be put back together again? How can we experience restoration? Is restoration even possible? I have good news for you today, folks, as we look at God's word and it boils down to this. You are not Humpty Dumpty. You can be put back together again. Restoration is possible. For broken relationships and broken people, restoration is possible. We're going to see that as we look at an incident from the life of Joseph. Joseph's story begins in Genesis chapter 37. He's a young man of 17, and he is his father's favorite. In fact, he even has a special coat that his father gave him to show everyone that he is his father's favorite. Joseph also has dreams. In these dreams, he sees his brothers bowing down to him. Even though 10 of his 11 brothers are older than him, he sees them bowing down in submission to him. Joseph shares these dreams with his brothers. They already were annoyed with him, and this kind of pushes them over the top. They actually throw him into a pit, into a cistern, and they're talking about how they're going to kill him. And then they relent and only sell him as a slave. Joseph is a slave in Egypt in the household of a powerful man named Potiphar. Potiphar's wife tries to seduce Joseph. He he, uh, resists her advances, but because of the power distance between them, she's able to accuse him of assaulting her and get him thrown into prison. In prison, Joseph interprets the dreams of Pharaoh's cupbearer and his baker, and he appeals to the cupbearer. He says, when you're released from prison, will you... Will you tell Pharaoh about how I've been treated unfairly? Will you um, tell him how I've been treated unjustly and falsely accused? And the cupbearer says, oh, yes, I absolutely will. And then he promptly forgets all about Joseph as soon as he's out of prison. Forgets about him, that is, until Pharaoh himself has dreams that no one can interpret. Then the cupbearer remembers Joseph. They bring him out of prison. He stands before Pharaoh, and he's able to interpret the dreams. He says, this is what they mean. We are going to experience seven years of plenty in Egypt, followed by seven years of famine. Joseph goes on to say, I suggest that we store up the excess from the years of bounty and use that to help us get through the lean years. Pharaoh says, that's a great idea. In fact, I'm going to put you in charge of that. He elevates Joseph to become the second most powerful man in the Egyptian empire, second only to Pharaoh himself. So when we get to the end of Genesis chapter 41, that's the situation. Joseph is in Egypt, he's married, he has two sons, he's powerful, and he's prosperous, but there's still some tension in his story, because those dreams that God gave him at 17 have not yet been fulfilled, 
and he has no relationship with his family of origin. He hasn't seen his brothers or his father for 20 years. All that's about to change, though, in the passage we're looking at today. Today, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 42, verse 1, all the way through chapter 45, verse 15. You'll be relieved to know that I'm not going to read all of that for you. I suggest that you read that on your own when you have time. I want to summarize what happens in chapters 42 through 44, and then we'll pick up reading it in chapter 45. Genesis 42 starts back in the land of Canaan, where Joseph's father, Jacob, is getting ready to send his sons to Egypt by grain because the famine has affected them in Canaan as well. He's keeping behind uh, one of his sons. He's sending 10, he's keeping one. The youngest one, Benjamin, who happens to be Joseph's only full brother. All the rest were half-brothers. The brothers go to Egypt and they have an audience with Joseph because he's the one in charge of the grain distribution. But the brothers do not recognize Joseph, but Joseph immediately recognizes his brothers. And he recalls his dreams as they bow before him. And, uh, and he actually uh, weeps at one point when he overhears them talking about how they had mistreated him uh, those years before. There's an interesting back and forth where Joseph accuses his brothers of being spies. And they say, oh no, we are not spies. In fact, they say we are, quote, honest men. Now, Joseph knows that that had not been true 20 years before. They were not honest men. So he sets up a test for them. He takes them all into custody for three days. And then he releases all of them except one, his brother Simeon. And he says to the other uh, brothers, he says, look, I sold you grain this time but I'm not going to sell you any more grain and I'm not going to release Simeon unless you come back with your other brother, Benjamin, that you've told me about. So, and then he, and, and uh, Joseph also instructs his steward to secretly return to his brothers all the silver that they had spent to buy grain. So the brothers get back to Canaan. They tell their father about what had happened and Jacob is distraught that Simeon has been left in Egypt. But he adamantly refuses to allow them to take Benjamin back to Egypt. He says, I've already lost one son. I've already lost another. I don't want to lose a third. But after the grain runs out, some time has passed, Joseph reluctantly agrees, or Jacob reluctantly agrees that they can take Benjamin back. So they do. They return to Egypt. They meet again with Joseph. And when they do, they attempt to return the silver that they'd found, mysteriously returned to them. And they present to him Benjamin. They are proving that they are, in fact, now honest men. They actually have changed. Uh, Joseph's dreams are fulfilled when all of his brothers, including Benjamin, bow literally before him. And uh, at one point when Joseph sees Benjamin, he's overcome with emotion. He has to turn aside so that they don't notice him sobbing. Joseph then sets up another test for his brothers. He instructs his steward to again return all the silver that they'd used to buy the grain, as well as to put a silver cup in Benjamin's sack of grain. And then once the brothers are a few miles down the road, Joseph sends his steward after them. The steward accuses them of stealing the silver cup. They, of course, protest. But the steward says, okay, but if I find that cup, whosever sack it's in is going to become a slave. The rest of you are free to go, but that person's going to be a slave. And the brothers say, no, we're not going to abandon any of us, no matter what. And even when that cup is found in Benjamin's sack, the brothers stick to it. They say, no, we're not abandoning him. They're returned to Joseph's presence and, and, and they, they, they repeat this, that they're not going to abandon him. 
You see, 20 years before, they had been all too willing to abandon Joseph to become a slave, but now they're unwilling to abandon Benjamin to become a slave. Again, they're demonstrating they have changed. Uh, Judah, one of the other brothers, actually makes an impassioned speech to Joseph. He says, take me instead. Let Benjamin go back home to our father. Keep me instead. Let me take his place. And after Judah's speech, Joseph can't contain himself anymore. And that's where we're going to pick it up in Genesis 45, verse 1. Would you stand with me and follow along as I read these verses for us? Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence! So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there's been famine in the land and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for your remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have, I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded to me in Egypt and about everything you have seen, and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept, and Benjamin embraced him weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterwards, his brothers talked with him. Well, Lord, again today, we are so grateful for your word and for the revelation that you want to bring by your spirit through your word today. Lord, I pray that this would continue to be a time when we encounter your presence in life-changing ways, that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we can see you more clearly, that you would open our ears and our minds to understand and hear all that you want to say to us today. Lord, we say no to any distraction or any confusion that would get in the way of that. We say no to any agenda other than what you want to accomplish in this time together. Lord, move on our hearts, quicken us to respond to you in the ways you want us to respond today so that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. Thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen. And you may be seated. What an amazing scene. <laughs> Joseph is glad to see his brothers. He's weeping. He embraces them. He kisses them. What a different scene than the scene 20 years before when they'd been selling him into slavery. Joseph has changed, his brothers have changed, and their relationship, wonderfully, has changed. Joseph's story shows us that restoration is possible. Relationships can be restored. Now, in Joseph's case, this was a relationship that he wanted restored, and there's an opportunity for that to happen. That may not always be the case for us. When we've been hurt by someone, we may not want that relationship to be restored, 
or there may not be an opportunity because they've died or otherwise out of our life. But when it's a relationship we want restored and there's an opportunity, it can happen. And regardless of whether every relationship in our life experiences that kind of restoration, we can be restored. Our souls can be restored. The pieces of our life can be put back together. We can experience wholeness. It's possible. This is a miraculous work that God does in our lives, but it's something that we get to partner with him in. We get to cooperate with him to see this restoration happen. As we look at Joseph's example, I want us to see four commitments we can make that help us partner with God to bring restoration in our lives and relationships. Uh, the, the first commitment is that we partner with God for restoration when we're willing to forego retribution. Where we're willing to forego retribution, that desire to pay others back for what they've done to us. Joseph had the power to do whatever he wanted to his brothers. He put them uh, in custody for three days. He held on to Simeon. He did not do that to try to get back at them. It was part of the test that he was setting up to see if they had changed. But the fact that Joseph was able to do that just on his own word shows that he could have done much, much worse to them. Joseph could have enslaved his brothers like they had sold him into slavery. Joseph could have killed his brothers like they had threatened to kill him those years before, but he doesn't. He's willing to forego retribution, that desire to pay them back. You know, when we have been hurt by someone, it's oh so tempting to want to get them back and pay them back for what they did to us. Fantasies can fill our minds, daydreams of what we would do to them if we had the chance, about how we would physically hurt them if we could, about how we want to make them suffer the way they made us suffer, about how we want to make their lives miserable like they've ruined our life. Those fantasies are enjoyable (laughs) in the short term. Speaking as one who has had those. They're enjoyable in the short term, but if we hang on to them over the long haul, they develop bitterness in our lives, and they end up hurting us. You know, if we're not careful, we can make our restoration, our our being okay, contingent on whether we're able to pay that person back. And that, ironically, ends up hurting us more, because it makes our restoration and healing dependent on something that we don't have control over, and something that may never happen. And so it's actually to our advantage to let go of that desire for revenge revenge and retribution. Now, when we're talking about this, it's important that we understand the distinction between retribution and justice. Because we want to forego retribution, but we want to pursue justice. Uh, We see this in Joseph's story. Uh, Joseph um, sought justice in his life. He appealed to the cupbearer and said, would you please make Pharaoh aware of the way I've been mistreated? Would you please bring it to his attention so he can make it right? Justice is one of the values of the kingdom of God. Justice is something that it's good for us to want to pursue. When we have been hurt by someone, it's good for us to want them to be held accountable by the proper authorities for what they did. It's good for us to pursue that. When when we see someone who's been hurt, it's good and right to want to see their abusers brought to justice and to be held accountable by the proper authorities. One of the keys to justice, though, is that phrase, the proper authorities. It's allowing the people who have that role to judge and punish and not take that into our own hands. Depending on the situation, that may mean church officials and leaders. It may mean 
uh, civil authorities and the court system. It may mean a higher up in our workplace or our company. But seeking justice means that we appeal to them to, uh, to, to bring the judgment and the punishment rather than trying to do that ourselves. So we want to forego retribution but seek justice. Here's something that makes that really, really hard. When we look around us, we see how imperfectly justice is executed in this imperfect world. And you've probably not only seen this, but experienced this in some way in your life. I know I have. Something happens, we've been hurt, we say, okay, I'm going to seek justice, I'm going to appeal to the proper authorities. And maybe you do that and there's some type of judgment or punishment given, but it just feels so insufficient compared to the hurt that was done. Or maybe you make the appeal and nothing happens. It's just crickets. It seems like nothing ever comes of it. Or maybe you make the appeal and it actually makes things worse. That higher up actually agrees with or defends the person who hurt you. Instead of them being held to account, you're made to feel like you did something wrong by talking about it or bringing it up. Justice is executed imperfectly in this world which is why I'm so glad that our hope for justice goes beyond this world. Our hope for justice does not ultimately lie only in the hands of church leaders or denominational officials or civil authorities or judges or the court system or bosses and HR departments. Our ultimate hope for justice lies in the hands of a perfect judge on a day of judgment that every person will face. And so we can trust the judge of the whole earth, to do what is right. This is actually a very important part of the forgiveness process, is releasing people into God's hands for judgment and punishment, rather than trying to punish them ourselves. None of this means that what happened to us was not wrong, or that it was okay, or that it didn't matter, or that it didn't hurt. It does. We acknowledge all of that. We acknowledge that passionately. And we choose to hand over judgment and punishment into the hands of the proper authorities, including ultimately and most importantly into the hands of God himself. If we want to experience restoration in our lives and in our relationships, we've got to be willing to forego retribution. You can't restore a relationship with someone if your ulterior motive is to hurt them. At least to not have it be the kind of flourishing relationship that you would want to have. So we've got to be willing to forego retribution. Another way we partner with God for restoration is to be willing to rebuild trust. You notice that Joseph does not trust his brothers right away. He first of all sets up a test to see if they actually have become honest men. And then he gives them another test to see if they're going to abandon Benjamin like they abandoned him or if they're going to stay true to him. He's giving them opportunities to demonstrate that they actually have changed. Folks, this is a good model for us to follow. If we want to have restored relationships with people, there's got to be trust in that relationship. But that does not mean that we have to trust people who hurt us. They haven't demonstrated that they've changed. It means that we want to be willing to give them an opportunity to demonstrate that they've changed. We give them a chance where the stakes are low to see if there's been change. Now, if they show they haven't changed, then we keep our distance. The relationship isn't going to be restored yet. And if they show they've changed, then we take another step, give another opportunity. And best case scenario, they've changed. 
Because it's possible that people can change. You can change. The people who hurt you can change. Change is possible, but it's not guaranteed. So we don't want to assume that just because time has passed, the person has changed. We also don't want to assume that there's no way that they could have changed in the time that has passed. So we want to take a step. We want to be willing to rebuild trust. Again, there's an important distinction we need to make between trust and forgiveness. Forgiveness is given. Trust is earned. You can forgive someone and not trust them. You can forgive them in terms of not holding what they did against them. You can release them into God's hands for punishment, not try to punish them yourselves. You can not live in reaction to what they did to you. You can... Um, you can bless them and want good things to happen for them. You can do all of that and do it fully and wholeheartedly and still not trust that person. And it's important to keep this in mind because sometimes the person who's hurt us wants to try to force the relationship to get back to normal again without any demonstration that there's been change on their part. And sometimes they can even uh, couch this in biblical or spiritual sounding language. They can say, well, you have to forgive me. The Bible says, you have to forgive me. And what they mean by that is, you have to pretend like what happened didn't hurt or didn't matter. They'll say, you have to love me. Don't you love me? What kind of a Christian are you if you don't love me? And what they're implying is that love means that you have to allow them to continue to dishonor and abuse and hurt you over and over again. Folks, that is not what forgiveness is. That is not what love is. And it matters that we keep those distinctions in mind so that abusive people in our lives don't get to keep on abusing us. It is not God's will for you to be abused. I can speak that with 100% confidence based on his character and revelation in his word. So, so if someone has demonstrated they're untrustworthy, keep your distance from them until there's been demonstrated change. A, a mentor of mine used to put it this way, don't play with dogs that bite. If you play with a dog and it bites you, heal from that bite, but if every time you play with that dog, it bites you, stop playing with that dog. If there's someone in your life that over and over again has hurt you and demonstrated that they haven't changed, keep your distance from them until there's been demonstrated change. This willingness to rebuild trust really matters if we want to see relationships restored, but it also matters for our own sake, even if the relationship with another person is never going to be restored because it matters that we're willing to rebuild trust with people because what can so easily happen is that we can um, view every person we meet through a lens of suspicion and cynicism because this person or these people over here hurt us, wounded us, betrayed us. We assume every person we meet is going to hurt us, wound us, and betray us. And that becomes the grid through which we look at the world. We think everyone's untrustworthy. Now, if we take that approach to life, what's going to happen? We're going to protect ourselves from being hurt from some untrustworthy people, but we're also going to prevent ourselves from having deep and meaningful relationships with people who actually are trustworthy. We're going to miss out on some relationships that could be life-giving and, and healthy for us. So friends, what I'm saying is don't trust untrustworthy people. Be willing to give them a chance to demonstrate that they've changed and give new people you meet the chance to demonstrate that they're not like 
the person or the people who hurt you. That's what rebuilding trust is about. This is how we partner with God for restoration. A third way is to engage our emotions. Joseph demonstrates this in spades in these chapters. If you read through, it's like every, next, every other verse he's crying. Like he weeps. He can't contain himself. He has to turn aside. He, he loses control of, of himself. His emotions are, all, are on display all through those chapters. And in this, Joseph is modeling something important for us, which is that emotions have to be part of the restoration process for the restoration process to be complete in our lives. Now, when I say choose to engage your emotions, some of you say, uh, I don't have a choice. My emotions are going to be engaged no matter what. Some of you, it's just the way you are. You're like, I'm going to be happy or I'm going to cry or I'm going to be mad. I'm going to have tears or whatever. Like, it's just, it's not something I think about. It just happens. Great. But for others of us, this is a conscious choice we have to make. You know, there's still a message in our culture, even though it's not as prevalent as it once was, there's still a message that showing emotion means showing weakness. I think somehow this is still more prevalent with, for men, that we receive this message that somehow it is unmasculine to show emotion. Many of us guys have not had it modeled for us well, what it looks like for a man to show emotion. And so as a result, we don't ever show emotion, or more common, every emotion comes out as anger. Because we're not expressing them, they're festering, and then they come out as anger. And so, especially for men, it sometimes is important to make this choice that I'm going to engage my emotions. I'm going to let myself feel some things. This choice is also important for those who have previously made a choice not to feel. The way this typically happens is that something happens that's incredibly painful. It's so painful you feel like you can't even handle the pain, and so you make a choice not to feel it. Maybe it's a conscious choice, or maybe you just ignore those feelings when they come. You suppress them, you deny them, you distract yourself in some way, and if you do that long enough, it works. You become numb to those feelings. But here's the problem. We can't be as selective with our emotional numbness as we would like to be. And so we don't feel those emotions anymore, but we don't feel positive emotions either. Our emotional life in total is stunted and shrunken. Our, our emotional range is very, very narrow. So what do we do to engage our emotions? Say, okay, Tim, you convinced me this is important. What do I do? Like, listen to sad songs? Do I, uh, you know, think sad thoughts? Do I um, watch that commercial about the hurt puppies with the Sarah McLaughlin song? Like, what is it that I do? Smell freshly cut onions to get the tears flowing? You can try that, but here's a better idea. Start going after it in prayer. By yourself, or better yet, with a trusted friend, just come to God and tell him what's going on. Some of us might need to say, uh, pray prayers that say, God, somewhere along the line, I heard the message that I shouldn't feel things, and I internalized that message, but now I see the ways that's limiting me. And so, Jesus, in your name, I renounce that false belief, that lie, and I ask you to please restore a full range of emotion to me. Others of us might need to pray a prayer that says, God, at one point in my life, I made a vow that I was not going to feel things. But now I see how that vow has hurt me and limited me. So in your name, Jesus, I break and renounce that vow. 
I lay down that defense mechanism and I trust you to care for me and protect me. And we do this and then we keep doing it as often as we need to do it. When those false beliefs come back, we renounce them again and we let ourselves feel what we're going to feel. Now, let me tell you that it doesn't mean that it's necessarily fun to feel all that we're going to feel. I, um, I put this into practice. Um, there's a, a time in the fall of, of 2021 that I just went through a very, very difficult, painful season. And there was a stretch of about six weeks where I cried literally every day. Sometimes it was only brief, briefly, sometimes it was for several minutes, but I cried every day. I did not enjoy it any of the times in those six weeks that I cried. Sometimes it happened in front of other people. I felt super awkward, but I cried. I made the choice, though, that I was going to feel what I felt because I knew it was going to help me recover more quickly in the long run, and it did. So I am recommending this to you not because it's fun, but because it's effective, because it's healthy. If we want emotions to be part of a restored relationship, they've got to be part of the restoration process. If we want to experience a full range of emotions moving forward, we've got to be willing to experience a full range of emotions now as we reflect on what happened to us before. We can't, it, it, again, it, not because it's fun, but because it's healthy and effective. This is necessary for us so that we can have um, the restored relationships with, with others and a restored relationship with God, that we are willing to engage our emotions. Fourthly, we partner with God for restoration when we're willing to see him at work. When we're willing to see him at work in the painful situation and in our brokenness. Joseph demonstrates this uh, in chapter 40, 45. Three times he says, God sent me here. God sent me here. He says, God sent me here to save lives. God sent me here to preserve a remnant. God sent me here and I'm like a father to Pharaoh. I'm Lord of all Egypt. God sent me here. See, Joseph had enough insight and enough hindsight to be able to see how God had been at work even through the wicked and hurtful actions of his brothers. Now, I think that hindsight part is probably important. I don't imagine that Joseph had this perspective when he was at the bottom of the pit listening to his brothers talk about whether they're going to kill him or merely sell him into slavery. I don't know that he had this perspective when he was a slave in Potiphar's household, when he was languishing in prison, seemingly forgotten. But now he's seen enough to be able to say, but God was at work through that. But God was at work through that. Folks, how good it is when we can have this perspective. But man, it is not easy. It's not easy, but I see it in Scripture. I've experienced it in my own life. I've heard enough stories from others to know that it's true that God can use even the wicked and hurtful actions of others to further his good purposes in our lives. It does not mean that God caused those actions. It does not mean that God is responsible for them. It just means that God is good enough and powerful enough to take even the hurtful and sinful actions of others and weave them into a plan that's good in our lives. This is what Joseph was emphasizing when he said, you didn't send me here, but God did. He says, I can now see God's hand at work through you. He, later in chapter 50, uh, Joseph will say, you intended it for evil. He's not in denial about what happened. He's not trying to like whitewash it as something that was good when it wasn't. What his brothers did was wrong and wicked, and that never changes. But Joseph says, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. 
He took something that you meant in a bad way and he used it for good in my life. You know, Romans 8.28 is an easy verse to quote. God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It's a true verse, but man, it's hard sometimes to experience that or feel it in our lives. You know, when we've been hurt by someone, been through a painful time, a question that we will often ask is, why? God, why did this happen? Why did you allow this to happen? Why didn't you prevent this? That is not a bad question to ask, and sometimes God will answer that question for us. But sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes we're only going to get the answer to that question on the other side of eternity, when we can see things more from God's perspective than is possible in this life. That question of why is not always answered, but how usually is. God, how are you going to use this to bring something good? How are you at work through this? How could you possibly bring something good out of the brokenness in my soul that I've experienced? But when we ask that question, how, we show that we're willing to see God at work to do something good in that situation. And seeing God at work brings a redemptive purpose to our suffering. So if a relationship with someone else is going to be restored... Uh, it allows us to have complete freedom and no resentment in that relationship because not only do we say, I'm not going to hold it against you, but we can say, but I actually see how God brought something really good out of it. And even if all our relationships aren't restored, it still matters, matters for our own restoration that we're willing to see God at work. Now, I said a moment ago that restored relationships require rebuilt trust. This is true in our relationship with God as well. We are not going to experience the fullness and depth of relationship with God that he intends to have with us if we always have a mental reservation when we think about his character. If there's an asterisk or a footnote when we think about who he is. We say God is love, footnote, except on this day he wasn't loving because that happened to me. Say God is good, asterisk, except if he was really good, he would have not allowed me to go through that. Being willing to see God at work, again, it does not deny the hurt, the wickedness, the pain of what happened. It says, but God, I believe that you're still good because you, you're bringing something good from it. And if I can't see it yet, I'm willing to believe that you can and will bring something good from it. Are we willing to see God at work? You know, I, I wish... I wish the sermon I was preaching today was, here's how to prevent ever being hurt. I wish the sermon was how to avoid brokenness in your life. I, I don't think those sermons are possible because I don't see uh, the Bible saying that. I don't think that aligns with what reality is. But here's the good news that we do see today. When there's pain, when there's brokenness, restoration is possible. You are not Humpty Dumpty. You've been broken, yes. Your soul's been shattered, yes. What was done to you? What was done to you was wrong, full stop. And restoration is possible.
and restoration is possible. And we, we see this in the life of Joseph. It can be true in our lives as well. We partner with God with this. It's something he does. It's a miraculous work, but we partner with him when we're willing to forego retribution and instead seek justice. When we're willing to rebuild trust, not trusting untrustworthy people, but not assuming everyone's untrustworthy and giving people a chance to change. When we're willing to engage our emotions and when we're willing to see God at work. You know, I, I know that the application of this word is going to be as different as each of us is different, as different as our life situations have been. And in, and in just a minute, we'll, we'll give a moment for some of that personal reflection. But as I was thinking about this and praying about this, I think there is a corporate application for our church or at least an application that's going to be common to many of you. Uh, I don't think I'm telling you anything you don't know. When I say that over the last maybe four years, Chapel went through an incredibly difficult period, and there was a lot of brokenness in people's lives and in this church. I have not met anyone that was here through that season that doesn't attest to some kind of brokenness that they witnessed, that they experienced, and Everyone has experienced broken relationships. There's a lot of people that aren't at this church anymore that were three, four years ago. There's a lot of brokenness. And I wonder what God would want to do to bring restoration. The restoration of people, that's a work that has to be done individually. I guess I'm thinking especially about relationships. And I I wonder if there's some of you who have been here for that time that might need to just take a minute with the Lord to say, God, where am I at in my relationships with people that I was on a different side of in that time? You know, I've heard, uh, I've heard lots of reasons why people got offended and left or were hurt. They were, there was hurt because of what was said and because of what, what, what wasn't said. There was hurt because of what was done and because of what wasn't done. There was hurt because of what leaders did and how leaders were treated. There's a lot of hurt from a lot of different angles. And I just think we have a moment to say, but for someone who was on a different side of that issue, for someone with whom my relationship was broken, with whom it's been strained, God, is there a way for that to be restored? Not every relationship has to be restored, but I just wonder if some of us, if God would bring people to mind, we'd say, but I would like it to be restored. I would like it that if they walked in the door on a Sunday morning, I would be happy to see them not angry. I feel like I'm stepping out a bit to say this because I wasn't here during that time and I I didn't feel that the way some of you felt that. But I feel impressed strongly enough to at least put it out there as a possibility and say, would you look to the Lord on this? Would you check your heart to see is there any resentment that you could confess? Is there any degree to which you're angry at other people where you would like to see them, um, you'd like to see a punishment for them, especially because they left the church that, on that sort of level? And could you just take that to the Lord and see if there could be a restoration that he would do in your heart and maybe even in that relationship? For the others of us, that's not the, the sphere in which this is going to be applied but I want to give us a moment now just to reflect before the Lord. So I invite the worship team to come back up. We're going to worship together. But we just set aside this time, Lord, for you to work. 
Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and speak to us. We set this apart as a safe space. We submit our own thoughts to you, and we also uh, reject any influence from the enemy that he wants to bring in this time so that we can hear your voice alone. So in this safe place, Lord, we listen to you. Jesus, I pray that you would speak to us about what we've experienced, about the relationships in our life, about the restoration you want to bring to us or through us. So Lord, speak now as we listen to you.